It's got a soul, this hero farm. It falls asleep inside my arms. We walk the fields under the stars. For love is here in Goldshaw Farms. Welcome to Goldshaw Farm. I'm your host, Morgan Gold. On each episode of our podcast, we bring you stories of people who are homesteading, farming, and chasing their dreams. And right now, I am actually standing in my kitchen waiting for my dinner to cook. It's been a long day, a lot of hard work on the farm, a lot of productivity. It's been cool to just sort of move the needle and see things getting done right now. And it's really on days like this where I will step back and just be kind of amazed at at how far I've come. You know, it wasn't even like, I don't know, gosh, four years ago or so that I was just a dude working a job in Washington, D.C., not really happy with the direction that my life was going in. And I was dreaming of having my own farm and trying to find land and trying to start my own farm. And it's it seems like it was so far ago, but it really wasn't that long Back when I was in that mode, in that phase of things, you know, there were a couple of guys that, that I've paid a lot of attention to out there who do content related to farming and homesteading. You know, I've said before, one of them was Justin Rhodes. You know, the other one who's like the granddaddy of all of this stuff is uh, Joel Salatin down at Polyface Farm in Virginia. And then there was a guy by the name of John Siskovich who had a podcast and made a whole bunch of YouTube videos that... I used to watch his stuff obsessively. I still watch his stuff a lot. I, I don't even know why I'm qualifying it. Uh, whenever he's making videos and whenever he's recording podcasts, I'm right there. And and John is just this interesting guy because he's had this great path of also going from a career outside of farming, moving into farming, and really starting to build up a strategy and a successful business and, and really making his model of, of agriculture work. He's also the guy who, you know, I've mentioned before we've raised geese here. And well, when I was raising my geese, I had them out in pasture and I kept them in these uh, mobile chicken tractors. Well, John Soskovich is the guy who designed those chicken tractors. You can actually go online and find the plans to buy John's chicken tractor, or you can buy the plans for John's chicken tractors and you can go build it yourself. And I will just say they are awesome. I've never had a predator issue with them. They are relatively easy to build. They are relatively functional and easy to move around. And uh, when it comes to doing pastured poultry, they are like the gold standard of chicken tractors you can build. Um, but beyond that, though, John has an interesting story himself. And, and so that's why I actually wanted to sit down today and, and have a conversation with John. And selfishly, this has been one of those ones that ever since I started this podcast, there was a list of people I wanted to talk to. And John was right there at the top of the list. And so without blathering on further and building any of this up, here's my interview with John Siskovich of Farm Marketing Solutions and Camps Road Farm. I wanted to race a Subaru Impreza competitively internationally, and uh, I <laughs> that was that was as a kid. I wanted to do that, and now um, you know. And then I got into playing outside, getting dirty, uh, using equipment, 
were building things with my hands, getting into my dad's garage and wreaking all kind of havoc. And uh, while the rally car uh, section of my life didn't work out, uh, all the rest of it did. Now I play in the dirt. I'm outside all day. I have my own garage to wreak havoc in. And uh, I get to be a 12-year-old uh, seven days a week. <laughs> yeah, there is definitely that kind of you're having fun playing feeling sometimes when you're working on a farm for sure. Yeah. Well, but so when you go from this vision of, all right, I want to be a rally car driver as a 12-year-old <laughs> kid to ultimately, all right, you got to go to college and do sort of what the, the standard tractive things are that people are expected to do. What, what were your expectations as you got into college? Were you thinking about agriculture at that point? Well, well it's funny that uh, I look back at it now and I was interested in all of the things that I'm doing right now. Like I, I shoot videos and I do multimedia. I've, I've published a bunch of things. I get to work on the farm. Uh, as a kid, I wasn't interested in beer, but now I'm uh, part owner of a brewery. And I had expressed interest in those uh, those specific, you know, they all seem like hobbies, like a, that my life is a big aggregate of hobbies. There was an interest in those throughout the years, and while I expressed interest in uh, doing all of those things, my teachers and my guidance counselor were like, well, no, you have one elective, and you're a band geek, so you're going to be in band, and you can't do any of those other things. And it took until after college, or it took until college to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, I went into design and technical theater. And then it was after college later on, this is career number two for me being a farmer, um, that I got to then look back and say, oh, I used to like that. And I used to like that. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do that. And now every day is waking up and saying, do I enjoy what I do? And if I do, I'm going to, I'm going to go do that because it's, it's enjoyable. And if I am like, oh, that stinks. Well, how do I adjust my life so that I don't have to do it anymore? <laughs> So, so it sounds like your life's taken these shifts where you, you've stepped back and said, you know what, this isn't exactly what I want to be doing. I want to go over here or go this way. How, how do you find kind of the courage to to pull one of those moves off? Because that, that's not, I, don't, I don't see a lot of people doing that all the time. Uh, uh, boatloads of hubris. <laughs> Just foolish overconfidence where uh, it's going to work out. You know, um, there's I'm willing to put the, the time in and I know that. When I want to reach for something, it's going to take a certain amount of commitment. It's going to take a certain amount of time. Uh, through the years, I've become increasingly realistic about my goals of there's things I want to do and you know dreams I want to chase, but it's going to take me time to get there. And whether it's financial hurdles, whether it's personal hurdles, I have kids now, so I have other responsibilities and people to be responsible for, but that's opened up a whole other realm. And, um, you have a dream, you know, the Goldshaw farm, uh, a, a, a big thing that you prophesize is chasing a dream. You know, this, what you've done and what you're doing on a regular basis is a dream that you had and that you want to pursue. And just the courage comes from the foolish overconfidence to just take the leap and do it and surrounding yourself with the right kind of people who are going to support you, uh, succeed or fail. And my strength comes from my community, my family, uh, the people that surround uh, my business. And um, that gives me the courage to try pretty much whatever. Yeah. So now tell me the story where, you know, you were working in New York, working in TV production, and that was when you made the decision that you wanted to, to take the leap to be a farmer. What, what, what's the story behind that? So I, I went to school for design and technical theater. I started working in TV more than theater. Uh, the pay was a little bit better. The hours were a little bit better. 
And uh, my main gig when I worked in New York uh, was with the Howard Stern Show. And the contract with my company was coming due and they were negotiating. And I saw the carrot being dangled in front of, you know, me and 40 of my coworkers and everybody's walking the hallways. It was a stressful couple months where everybody do, are we going to have a job at the end of the year? Uh, is this going to pan out? And it's not unique to my situation that, um, there's a little bit of insecurity in the day to day, we'll say corporate America. You know, I was, I was out of control of my situation and that was something that was very uncomfortable for me. And as I saw that that carrot be dangled of whether or not we were all going to be able to return to work. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is terrible. You know, it was com- combined with living in the city, uh, being in a relative food desert where if you weren't making elite money, you couldn't buy the elite food, which is what I eat now. But let, let me tell you, I'm not making the elite money. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that sounds bad. I'm, I'm eating a healthier and more purposeful way that should be. <laughs> Uh, available to everybody, but, uh, let's face it, our food system is a little bit broken, uh, but that's, you know, a topic for maybe later. Um, so I'm living in the city. I can't find good, find or afford good food. And I see my career just headed in a way that I just don't want to continue pursuing. And I have what I now defined as a quarter life crisis where I was like, I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to go down this trajectory. And I followed the path. I went through I went through high school, I went through college. I got a job in the field that I went to college for. It was great. And uh, I was looking at the guys who had been doing this for 30 years, and they were all miserable. And they weren't making that much more money than me as an early 20-something. And I'm like, this is not where I want to be in 30 years. Even if I'm making less money, I want different set of values in my life. Like all the other values aren't there. Um, so Kate and I left New York city. We rode our bikes across the country for a year, uh, visiting farms and breweries and then apprenticed on a farm and then started our own thing. I mean, that's like the very 32nd nutshell version, but we, uh, we had a dream. We wanted it in a different option and, uh, we just went for it sometimes blindly. Sometimes we knew what we were looking, we thought we knew what we were looking for. And sometimes we just, just, you know, that's where the sun is rising. That's where the sun's going to set. So let's head in that direction. Hmm. So when you guys are on that uh, trek across the country riding bikes, what would you say the biggest thing you learned through that experience was? My biggest takeaway uh, from that entire experience is that people in general are good. And people are great. And uh, you asked me what gives me the courage to pursue some of the things that I've done. And that's knowing that if I put the hours in, if I put the effort in, uh, people are going to see that and respond to it. It comes with a fair amount of white privilege of that, like, I'm a moderately good looking white male in America and not to say that I'm better than anybody else, but that affords me some certain advantages. If I'm out on the road and someone sees me struggling, but putting the effort in, they're going to reach a hand out, give me a hand up. Um, And we found that uh, across the country, it didn't matter. We were in really, uh, we're supposed to be pretty bad urban zones. Uh, We were out in the country. We went through the Midwest. We went on, you know, in the parentheses of the country. We went from New York City to Seattle to San Diego, almost 6,000 miles. And in every demographic that we hit, we found awesome people. Uh, And that just filled up my heart in a way that, uh, 
kind of needed it after living in New York City for four years. Mm. And and then as you got that experience, you you know found your way back here to the East Coast and and set up your farm. How did you go about finding the land, finding the place, figuring out what your business model is? Like how how do you like dive into something like that? The uh, so I, I talked uh, at the beginning uh, very uh, briefly about expressing interest in all these categories in my life that I now do professionally and earn money at. Um, one of the failings of our education system is the algebra sandwich. You do algebra, you might get calculus, um, geometry, you get algebra, geometry, algebra, and then if you're lucky, you get calculus. Nowhere in there do you learn statistics, data sets, information, but we base all of our politics off of polls and collecting data from people, analyzing data. When you want to make a good point and you become a good debater, uh, it's all about information and how much information you can get and what you can derive from that data set. And data set sounds nerdy, but it's like it's, it can be so simple. When I was uh, when we were landing on a piece of land, finding our farm, I did my research. I didn't learn this in school. I had to teach myself and I'm not very math forward. So it's the, I had to work pretty hard at it, but I studied the demographics of Connecticut because I knew I wanted to live in land in Connecticut. I have family here. Kate has family here, my wife, and, uh, we wanted to be close enough. That's why we're in this area. There's no good reason to be in Connecticut other than you have family here. Because... And, and as a Connecticut native, I can vouch for that. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason why you're in Vermont. You know, they, if you fart, there's a good, there's a, ta I bet there's a tax for that. Um, you know, and you haven't paid that tax yet, you know, if you've eaten your beans. So uh, I did my studies and I wanted to be near a major metropolitan area. So be near, uh, closer to New York. I wanted to be near some population centers, but outside of it just enough where the land was accessible. Uh, I wanted to be around uh, within a decent distance to slaughterhouse because I was going to raise meat. And um, I was looking for open land near people with money that would spend money on what I had to produce on the farm. And so when I was looking for a piece of land, I pulled out Google Maps. I bought an atlas. Uh, that had satellite views, and I was looking for rivers and streams with river bottom. I was looking for open areas that had uh, fields that were being hayed. Uh, in our area, there's a lot of rich people with a bunch of property who let local farmers hay it, and did, they're just strip mining it uh, for the nutrients, pulling the grass off. That landowner wins because their land doesn't go back to woods, and they can get an ag agricultural easement, which gives them a tax. Uh, incentives. And then the hay farmer gets free hay from the rich people. Um, me as a scrappy pasture-based mobile uh, farmer, which is what I was starting, uh, wanted to find those people and make those connections. So I built a pitch for the rich people and a pitch for the people hanging it. And I found tracks of land where I said, this is what I'm doing. This is the effort that I put in so far. Here's my track record. Here's you know my history. Uh, I would like to start a pastured poultry business where you can get a cutting of hay. I'll run a batch of birds for two months behind your uh, cutting of hay. I'm going to add nutrients into the soil to make your hay better. Uh, it benefits the landowner. It benefits the farmer. And it benefits me. And I purposefully built all of my infrastructure to be mobile because I knew it wasn't a long-term solution. But instead of buying a piece of land, <clears throat> 
uh, I leveraged the opportunities that were in my area uh, and built my language around that so that I could find free uh, or, you know, I, I had a lot of handshake deals um, just to get going, get my feet wet until I could find a more permanent uh, situation. So, so you, you definitely went that well-recommended route of, of trying before you're buying, you know, the, the, that big capital requirement of, of trying to get land. You didn't actually go down that road, which I feel like a lot of people, myself included, often make that mistake of like, oh, I'm going to start a farm. I guess I'm going to need land to do it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I was uh, whether it was a podcast or a video of yours where you bought the like 150 acres, and you're like, oh man, I like have all this land that I have to pay taxes on now, but I can't fully utilize all of it yet, and it 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 can be done, and you have to make sacrifices on what all of your ideal situations and scenarios are, but to find a smaller plot with larger plots around it that are in agricultural easement uh, that are being hayed that have landowners that are open to this kind of thing. And it takes a lot of searching. It takes a lot of beat in the pavement. When I was finding property, I had my, you know, I had 20 copies of my pitch in hand and I had a list of addresses that I want to hit that day. And I drove around and I knocked on doors and I slipped paper in mailboxes. I put paper under people's front doors and, um, just was, brazen about just trespassing <laughs> and you know like i went jehovah witness style and uh, to be able to find somebody and i when it came down to it i had about six different options to choose from and i got to choose what was the best holistically for me and my startup uh that benefited me long term so that the land can be found you just you have to beat the pavement. You have to put the time in. You have to have some money saved to cover you while you spend that time to do that. Uh, and those are all the things that like don't fit neatly in a how to start a farm package. It's just like there's a lot of grit. There's a lot of like nervous nights. There's a lot of times where you're just like, well, I'm just going to live off coffee and cliff bars today and just drive around and get it done. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, so now as you're doing that for a couple of years, where do you go from there with your farm and your business model? I here's where um, my story diverges from the norm. You know, like I'm mean, not not normal that I was living in New York City and I rode a bike across the country and I got this farm startup. Um, I when we went across the country, we had started the website foodcyclist.com and our catchphrase was "Will bike for food," and it was an open domain at the time. And it fit, you know, we were riding on bikes and visiting farms for however much time. And when we came back, we farted, we farted, we started food cyclist farm and, uh, it's that farm and start all in one word. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and, uh, 11 miles away from me at the same time, uh, started the food cycle, which was a farm, a brewery and a distillery. And that's the parent LLC for the company I'm with now. That's um, one of the partners for and uh, I was doing my research and I had the farm plan. I'm like, I'm going to start this pasture poultry farm. It's a uh, quick, quick turnaround, two months to raise a bird. I'll start a CSA. I'll get some interest. We'll get through the first couple of years. And then I'll take on some investment, get a partner and start a brew pub where we source things from the farm and build it into the story of the beer. And having traveled 6,000 miles, 11 miles away from me, the food cycle was starting that was raising chickens for eggs and starting a brewery with more funding than me. And I was like, no friggin' way that I just travel for a year intentionally homeless. And I've been all over the, all over the map 
and here 11 miles away from me is same name, same business model and, you know, one step ahead of me. And I'm like, oh man, what do I do? And I found in, in this, you know, our, our little realm here that there's no competition, there's collaboration. So I bought a six pack, went and knocked on the door and was like, Hey, here I am. Let's, you know, here's my story. And they were like, are you trying to steal our business model? And I was like, started laughing. I'm like, steal, steal your what now? You know, you know, I'm driving a 1995 GMC Jimmy with 200,000 miles on it that, you know, I'm like held together with duct tape and a, a prayer. And, uh, they're like, Oh, you're pretty cool. And I was like, Hey, you guys are pretty cool too. And, uh, it turns out we became friends. Um, they started buying chickens from me and they needed a farm manager and I cooked my book. I did my books and I was like, oh, I'm going to need more. I'm going to need more work to get through the winter. And, uh, they needed a farm manager. I needed a job. I came on as the farm manager and then, uh, worked for a year and a half, uh, as an employee. And then was like, listen, I'm running the farm. I would like more skin in the game. I'd like to be a partner with you guys. And they were like, yeah, yeah, you're pretty awesome. This has been a good trial period. Uh, come on as a partner. And we, you know, there's five of us that run the company now. Um, so it's, I, it's been awesome for me because, uh, I didn't have to buy the piece of land. I don't have a lease anymore. Uh, one of my partners bought the property and then the farm and the brewery lease it back from him. Uh, so we're pretty secure in that. And then at the end of the day, a lot of the things that I do on farm are reliant of are you know, are influenced by what we do in the brewery. Um, so there's a lot of things that may not make a hundred percent financial sense from a farm standpoint, but holistically throughout a farm brewery and distillery makes sense for our story, our marketing, uh, and our business model as a kind of unique entity in Connecticut. So, so rather than having an off farm job, you have an off farm on farm job kind of. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely, um, I mean, when I, when I need to make it easier to say, I just say, I have an off farm job on farm, you know, it's, that's exactly it. Um, is that right now, uh, in particular, my scale on farm isn't a hundred percent sustainable just from a farming standpoint, but my personal skills are applicable to the brewery and the distillery for, uh, sales and marketing, uh, and then infrastructure and facilities, um, where I'm helping drive the whole business forward. Uh, but the farm is in a major contributor because let's face it, beer, uh, is a higher margin and easier to sell, uh, you know, thing. Well, it, it's interesting you should talk about that. Cause one of the things I'm dealing with right now is, um, as I'm doing this pastured goose operation and I'm realizing that if I could do something as a value add product and have it be easier to distribute and have a higher margin, it probably ultimately make more business sense for me. How do you reconcile that difference and distinction that happens where the true farming product is it's really hard to, unless you're at a serious scale, make a good living from it. Um, but when you see other sorts of products like beer as something that, yeah, you know, there's really good margin, good money, and you can you can easily earn a living from it. Uh, I will say that it is not easy. <laughs> fair, <laughs> it is, fair. It is, it is just different. You know, uh, it is different and we are, we do operate at a certain scale <clears throat> that is attainable by the, the nature of the manufacturing process that is creating beer, uh, or spirits. And they both come with their, you know, uh, farming, brewing and distilling all come with their, 
their scale, their growth, the tipping point of when it's too small uh, or when you're big enough where you need to step up and get bigger. Uh, and we've lived through a bunch of those steps now. It's uh, pulling it around to ag, creating a, a commodity. Like we're growing hops on the farm. Well, we'll, we'll take that uh, as an example. Creating, uh, there's two types of hops. One is for bittering early in the process where you're offsetting the sweetness of your, your young beer. And then there's um, aroma hops that are dry hopped at the end of the process that add more flavor to it. In the, in the beginning, it's very much a commodity. It doesn't matter as much what hops you use because they're just bittering a sweet liquid. At the end, you're adding aromatics and it's nuanced and it can change region to region. There's a little bit of terroir there. Um, on our farm, we're growing the hops that you add at the end because you're going to make the biggest difference It is the biggest value added there versus fighting the commodity market of bittering hops, which just doesn't make sense. And farming right now, and in general, you know, you see it with everybody with Amazon packages piling up in people's front doors. We're in a convenience based society. That's the way the market's going. I mean, Polyface just started delivering to people, and that was a big thing in the, the homesteading and small scale farming community where they were like, they went back in their ideal. And like, it, it makes total friggin' sense. And if you're not agile as a business, then you're going to die on your ideals and have to move off the land. So, Instead of saying, I'm just going to sell whole raw geese frozen to people, then you're looking for some value add where can you smoke goose breasts and slice it and sell it as a, you know, as a, um, as a, a cured meat that high end restaurants give on their platter that it goes for $25 a pound instead of $5 a pound, you know, um, where we're at right now is finding where we can make use of every single bit of the animal or vegetable or honey or whatever you're growing um, and where we can add value and add one more processing step for ourselves so that we're delivering something to the customer that makes it easier for them to consume. We have people coming to the brewery and they're coming here to drink and buy beer. And I raise chickens on pasture and I'm selling a whole chicken. And now I had a dip in sales because I switched from going to uh, several farmers markets to pulling back thinking I would sell a lot through my farm store. But those people who are coming to buy a beer are coming for the convenience of when you buy a can of beer, Morgan, you buy that can of beer, you take it home and you go, and you open it and you drink it. When you buy a whole frozen chicken, you have to take it home. You have to thaw it. You have to take it out of the package. You have to handle it. You have to reach your hand in its slimy little cavity and pull the guts out. And then you have to cook a, a meat with bones in it. What is that? It's 2019. I don't understand this. You know, like we're so far removed. The general consumer is so far removed from that, that it's a harder sell. And I built up that and I have a good customer base now. But when I made that switch at the scale we were at, I saw that drop in scales because there wasn't a convenience added into my product that made it easier for people to consume. So instead of for, for me on my end, instead of adding the convenience in, I did more education. Um, and that is the convenience is that I re had to reteach people how to cook a whole bird. Um, <clears throat> but as we're grow talking about growing farms and scaling up and how do we make a go of this, um, you, you can wish for one thing, but you really have to, uh, figure out where the market's at and then how you can insert yourself in that. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. 
On the topic of scaling up, uh, you've been somebody who's been really open and honest about this idea of as you maybe try to scale up or try to do too many things, it can often get overwhelming. Um, oh, totally. <laughs> like, like how, how do you like how have you experienced that in the past, and how do you try to create some balance today? In 2014, uh, when I started my farm myself, and then moved onto this farm in 2013, 2014, we were doing hops, apples, uh, chickens for meat, chickens for eggs, uh, sheep. I think we had pigs that year, and then a quarter acre of vegetables with me and three people. That was that was insane. If you were a, an experienced farmer, that was insane. You can either do one thing well or a lot of things not well at all. Um, trying not to swear on the podcast, but you know, like it. It the more things you do, the more things you're going to do poorly. Uh, better to be known for one thing and then grow as you see a need uh, as a need presents itself. Um, again, through your data and research. Um, but starting with one, maybe two things is just the way to go because you, you're not going to be able to see all of the diseases that come your way. You're not going to know the seasonal and uh, year to year fluctuations of you had a wet year, you had a dry year, you had a wet spring and a dry fall, and then you had a dry spring and a wet fall. And how does all that play out throughout your year? And that makes a difference in livestock. It makes a difference in vegetables. And there's no way because even if, say, you could hire 30 staff tomorrow, Morgan, uh, you still have to manage all of them and you have to make the decisions and you have to have the system set up so that all of those people can operate. Uh, and if you were to hire all 30 experts, there's no way you're going to pay them uh, what they need to stick around because uh, labor is a whole other, you know, it's a whole other can of worms. Um, but starting with too many things and too diverse, you want to think like, I'm going to have a diverse farm. I'm going to grow all my own food, I'm going to be self-sustainable, and I'm going to create a business. Your self-sustainability, just like my courage to try things, comes from your community. I raise pasture poultry. I raise chickens and pigs and sheep, and then I have ingredients for beer. I don't raise vegetables anymore because I'm not the greatest at it. I can do it, you know, my feet to the fire, but I have friends who are fantastic vegetable farmers, and we barter. And uh, throughout the years, I've developed a, a good community where I can barter my skills for to leverage other people's skills that I'm not self-sustainable here on Camps Road Farm. I'm self-sustainable here in Western Connecticut because I have enough friends who produce the things that I want to eat. Yeah. No, I think that that community that you build around yourself is, is critical. It's It's been one of the things that when I moved out here, you know, middle of nowhere, uh, Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, like... You know, trying to find friends and make connections. Once that happened, it became this whole world that opened up from advice to equipment to skill sets that I didn't have. And then I found that there was stuff that I could do that I could pass along to others. And it just, it's amazing once you start to find that, those connections. Yeah, they're critical. And it's, you know, that's what uh, 4-H used to bring. And uh, I can't think of the... Oh, like the Grange? Or the Grange. Yeah. yeah, the Grange. You know, <laughs> like they used to be a place where people could come and like have a potluck and, you know, bring their chicken pot pie and be like, oh, yeah, my tether's broken. Oh, you know, I got that part in my, you know, thing. It's your part's three weeks out from the manufacturer. And it's you you find those connections. I had one recently where um, I had to get an alternator rebuilt. And I had friends over for a, uh, an on-farm event uh, with other young farmers. It's craft in our area. And uh, I was hanging out with these two guys, and they were like, oh, no, 
you got to go to this guy. This guy is great. He's fast. He's, you know, less expensive and he's like right down the road. And I was like, I didn't even know he existed. I brought my starter there. The place I had been going to, I was like, can you give me any idea how long it's going to take? And they're like, you know what? It's going to get done when it gets done. And I'm like, I can't operate like that. And I go to the new guy. His shop is well lit, tightly run. It was just him. And I, I was like, oh, here you go. I, you know, I wrote all the information out. And he's like, oh, you've done this before. I was like, yeah. He's like, all right, I, I'll give you a call in the morning. I should have it done by the end of the today. But worst case scenario, tomorrow morning, I was like, I didn't even have to ask you. This is amazing. And I found <laughs> that out because I had a potluck happenstance. And it just so happened my tractor was dead because it's a Mahindra. And that's what they do. But that's, again, another topic. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> so, so. How much of that community building, though, for a lot of us today has moved online? And, and what do you see as some of the strengths of that and, and some of the weaknesses? That's a, that's a, an awesome question. Um, there, it depends on what you want to get out of what community. Um, what's amazing is that we are both more accessible to more people and more isolated um, by this whole big wild west of the Internet. And... Uh, for me, I get different things out of uh, different areas. With being a farmer and needing the advice and the experience, I rely on communities online because I'm pretty much it for pasture poultry in Western Connecticut. Um, so I rely heavily on the American Pasture Poultry Producers Association or APA uh, or APA. Pa, 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 pa. Um, <clears throat> where I can ask any question on the forum, get it answered, uh, it most obscure, most detailed, most generic. It doesn't, I've seen the same question asked a dozen times in the couple of years that I've been a member and without fail, like the old salts, the, the, the board members will answer that question with the same, uh, passion as if they've been asked for the first time. And so when it comes to knowledge base, um, those, that's very important to have that online access. And that comes with a grain of salt that there's a lot of homesteading or amateur communities that will give you a lot of bad advice very, very passionately. And you take anything you get off the internet, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's real. You know, it's just the internet. It's anybody can publish stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have a hundred. Oh, I knew that all too well. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have 600 and something videos and a hundred thousand YouTube subscribers. And some of my early videos are absolute trash. And I've been trying to delete the ones that I find. And I'm like, oh, that is just wrong, you know, but here, here we are today. Um, when it comes to building uh, a local community and customers and people who are really involved with you, uh, without a doubt, that face-to-face -face interaction, shaking hands, kissing babies <laughs> is, is extremely valuable. Uh, when I met my first CSA members who are still friends with me today, uh, one of them I met this morning to go get apple seconds from a local orchard, um, we met in their kitchen and I walked through my business plan. I had all my notes out handwritten in a notebook, not on an iPad, not on a computer. I was handwriting everything in a notebook and said, here's what I'm going to do through the year. Here's how many chickens I'm going to raise. Here I'm going to process. Here's how I'm going to sell. Here's <coughs> everything you're going to need to know about my farm. And uh, that face-to-face -face interaction made lifelong relationships for me. And those people, here's here, here's just a crazy scenario for uh, for you, Morgan. Uh, 2013, we had no jobs, no place to live, no car, and we were pregnant with our daughter Mabel. And uh, we were like, 
we're going to start a farm and move to Western Connecticut. And we found a place to live. Uh, we started this farm and we had our daughter July 15th, super convenient time to have a baby when you're in the middle of farming season. And these people who had paid $480 for a chicken CSA came with food, lasagna, salads, you name it, and came to our house and helped clean the house, pick up stuff, take care of the baby while Kate slept for a little bit while I was out in the farm. All these people who had bought into my business also were there for us personally when we went through a major life event. And that to me, to this day, is uh, incredibly moving uh, and just like I'm just now I'm looking at you, but I see the faces of all the people, you know, just like flashing in front of me of like, should I go down the list of 50 people that I want to thank? No, it's Morgan's <laughs> podcast. I shouldn't do this. No, it's it, it is remarkable, though. Yeah. How there is that just deeper and closer bond that gets formed when you actually meet somebody face to face. It it They go from being just sort of this kind of faceless entity or somebody you're watching on the Internet to being a real human who exists. And it just it creates just such a deeper connection and then you start to want to do more, engage more, more. Oh yeah, totally. And it's, you, you want to take care of those people. You want to serve those people. You're, you're, you don't want to farm because you want to farm. You want to farm because you want to help people. You want to satisfy their needs. You want to give them something that they're aching for. And that's what makes you a good business person. I, I raised pasture poultry because no one else around here is doing it. And the people who really want it, really want it. I've had CSA members tell me, I don't care what you charge, John, just don't stop doing what you're doing. You know, you mentioned earlier kind of this view of a, a broken food system. And we're just talking now about why you do what you do. What are the other things that you think need to happen to, to really try to fix the food system or put it at least on a better track than it's on today? I have a lot of faith in our food system moving the direction that it needs to in seeing more people like you on YouTube, uh, more farm websites pop up, more people going to homesteading conferences, um, the membership on APA becoming more diverse. You know, that's a, a specific trade group that I follow. So, you know, I've got the beat there <clears throat> where we don't get, this doesn't get, you know, there, there's like, 1% of the farms are producing 99% of the food, you know, is our, our favorite one in 99% statistic, but there's, there's too much food on too few farms. And to me, that's fragile. And when we talk about, I, I hate the term feed in the world, you, know, you feed the world, you don't do it with the, just on the small farms that exist today. We do it on the small farms that exist 20 years from now. And there's a groundswell. Not all of this existed when I was getting into farming 10 years ago. You know, definitely all of this didn't exist 20 years ago, 30 years ago. None of this groundswell, homesteading, Mother Earth News, all of that grew out of the fact that there's a growing passion and a need for people moving back to the land, getting in touch with their food system, even if you never work the ground yourself. The fact that you are taking the time to listen to the Goldshoff podcast and you're becoming more educated about what you eat, where your food comes from, that makes a difference. The When you vote with your food dollars, that's what needs to happen. We need more people to be transparent 
about what they're doing, how they're doing it, what their struggles are. And when I go to my state legislature and say that we need to make it easier to have slaughterhouses in Connecticut, that's not a sexy topic, Morgan. You know, like I want it easier to murder animals in Connecticut. You know, tell me how fast that bill goes through. But if I go with three people, they're going to be like, look at this fringe group of crazies. If I go with 300 people who have been raising 30 broilers a year in their backyard because, you know, they, they bought my uh, chicken tractor book and they built a chicken tractor and they want to do it for their families. And maybe they want to do a little extra, but and sell at the farmer's market. But the, the regulations just aren't there and they can't get farm insurance and you get in all that like boring dry topic. I, I've done what I've done with farm marketing solutions in my life. What keeps me up at night is uh, inspiring and educating that next generation so that we have more people doing it. And the more people that do it, the more need there is for the general infrastructure, the more pushback there is against big ag and uh, the crap policies of the USDA. You know, there's there's some good there, but there's a lot of bad. The more people who are into it, um, the better off we're going to be longer term and that we can get to a point um, through where we can convert conventional ag and a more sustainable ag and then reaching beyond sustainable into regenerative agriculture so that we can sequester carbon, so that we can feed people, so that people are healthier and uh, the world is just a better place. And that is what I want to leave for my girls, you know, with my life's work. And for that person who's now sitting in their car listening to this podcast, listening to us talk about changing the world and, and doing things differently. And like, yeah. man, John talks a lot. Yeah, no. Or they're like, oh, gosh, man, I want to do that. Like, wh- what would be that very first next step you'd suggest for somebody to take if they wanted to try to go kind of be a part of that movement? You can't get anything done without action. You know, you can you can wish. And there's a, there's a, a human psychology principle that you if you tell somebody you're going to do something it feels as good as if you almost did it yourself i've uh, adopted the policy of i'm not going to talk about anything until i've actually tried it so actually try it you know if you've never done anything go to the farmer's market try something new buy i always um kate and i have a rule um when we go to the farmer's market and buy our veggies and whatever else that we don't have for the week buy something we don't know what to do with you know, kohlrabi. What the heck do you do with kohlrabi? You know, buy something from a local person that you're like, I'm not sure how to cook a goose with bones in it. <laughs> you know, how do you cook a whole goose? You know, that's a lot. Is that like a, does that take place over Thanksgiving turkey? Is that a new Christmas deal? Do you do that in the middle of the summer? You know, like what's the turnover on a goose? I don't know. And ask that farmer, what do, what do I do with this now? And it's up to that farmer to know to give you recipes and be that salesperson and and convert that sale. You know, so it's just getting your feet wet and learning to enjoy food. You have to eat it. You're going to be healthier if you buy healthier food. So you're investing in yourself and that's going to long-term reduce your healthcare costs. And then you're like, oh man, I bought all these geese from, from Morgan. I'm going to try that. He's always talking about like, oh, they eat more grass than grain. You know, they're better than chickens. Well, let's see if this this is real. I'm going to get John's chicken tractor book and build a chicken tractor and put some geese in it. And then you try it out. You know, raise 10 geese, 10 in your backyard. You can process 10, 10 geese or, you know, 30 chickens or whatever it is. And then you're like, oh, this is really cool. I'm only going to do it. I'm going to stop here. You know, but now I'm invested. 
where else can I get good food? Learn to love your kitchen. You know, that's where, that's where I would start with anybody, whether you want to do it as a career or whether you want to just eat and be healthy, love your kitchen, learn to cook like your great grandmother did. And then over time, you're going to learn, do I want to pursue my ingredients further or am I happy investing in the people who are themselves, uh, furthering their ingredient, you know, it's like full contact grocery shopping. That was an awesome conversation. You know, when I sat down with John and we started talking, I didn't even realize it had been like 45 minutes by the time I hit stop record on the interview. It was just a good conversation and I'm really appreciative of John taking his time to give us all his story because I think it's, it's a pretty interesting one. There's a lot to be gleaned from it, a lot to learn from it. If you want to learn more about John and see what he's doing, uh, be sure to go to his website, farmmarketingsolutions.com. You can find information about pretty much everything he's doing from there, whether it's the uh, chicken tractors, whether it's his pastured poultry packets, which help you think about how to market and sell your your, uh, pasture-raised poultry. Uh, You can also find his YouTube videos, links to his podcast, just the whole nine yards. It's all there, farmmarketingsolutions.com. Please, please, please go check it out. Um, and learn more from John because John's just got an incredible amount of information to share. And if you want to learn more about Goldshaw Farm and what we're doing here on our farm, uh, be sure to check us out on YouTube. Uh, You can just find us uh, by looking for Goldshaw Farm on on the YouTube. We actually just uh, hit a milestone this week where we are up at 50,000 subscribers for our YouTube channel, which kind of blows my mind. when we started this uh, YouTube channel about a year and a half ago as a way to document what was going on with our farm and what was taking place, I never thought it would go this quickly and grow this quickly. And uh, I'm just so excited and pleased to see how many people enjoy the content. And uh, yeah, I will keep making videos and stories about our farm and, and I appreciate that you guys keep watching it. And I also appreciate that you guys keep listening to this podcast. This is another thing where the numbers just kind of keep growing. I keep seeing all these reviews popping up on places like Apple iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher. Um, and, and please, please don't let those other other reviews stop you, though. Keep writing them. The more reviews you guys write about our podcast, it actually it makes it easier and easier for people to find our podcast. So I appreciate that support. And I will be back again real soon with another story about somebody who's homesteading, farming, or chasing their dreams here on the Goldshaw Farm podcast. But with that, I will ask my good friend, Mr. Keith Pierce, to please play our theme song. It's got a soul, this hero farm, it falls asleep inside my arms. We work the fields under the stars, the love is here. Goldshaw Farms A city life Yeah, it had its charms But we would dream Of the fields under the stars I fall asleep Inside its arms The love is here At Goldshaw Farms The love is here At Goldshaw Farms